you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Who knew? Who knew we'd do another one, like a thousand podcasts? We just do it again. We just keep on coming. I guess we're going to be looking for the next thousand here. Anyway, guys, be sure to go to youtube.com. You've heard of it. You've wanted to go there and press the bell notification button on youtube.com for us, Chris Voss. But deep down in your heart and soul, you've always wanted to press that button and belong to a much larger community that doesn't judge you. So go do that on the Chris Voss show, or at least on Chris Voss on youtube.com. Go also go to goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss. See everything we're reading and reviewing over there. Two of my books are on uh, the Goodreads giveaway. We're giving away, I think, 120 books or some crazy thing like that. We're lost our minds. It's the end of the year. It's one of those sales. It's one of those. We've lost our minds. We're out of control. It's like, I don't know, we're doing car sales or book sales. I don't know what we're doing. Anyway, guys, go to all the groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, all those different crazy places. You can see everything we're doing on the Chris Voss Show or, I don't know, whatever I'm eating that day. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to Beacons of leadership.com that's beacons of leadership.com on there you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book and for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like amazon you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away uh different collectors limited edition custom made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me there's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beacons of leadership.com so be sure to go there check it out or order the book where refined books are sold today we have an amazing author excuse me we had an amazing author on the show and we just put in the google machine amazing authors brilliant authors and they just come up and we go hey we should invite those people to the show and they come on today a hot new book that's just coming out in paperback the paperback version of it tonight we bombed the u.s capitol the explosive story of m19 america's first terrorist group has just come out november 23rd 2021 on paperback you can get all the different variations of it by dr william rosenau he's gonna be on the show he's gonna be talking to us about it and telling us all the deets about his book as the kids like to say he is a senior policy historian at cna a federally funded research and development center and fellow in the international security program at the new america foundation he is the author of this newest book that we just mentioned published by simon and schuster his articles have appeared in The National Interest, Foreign Policy, Spectator USA, The Atlantic, Politico, 
and War on the Rocks. He holds a PhD in the War Studies from King's College London and an MA in History from Cambridge University and a BA in Political Science from Columbia University. Wow, what an education record there. Welcome to the show, William. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, Chris. Uh, how, how are you today? I'll be doing great if I can keep my voice from cracking. I don't know what that's all going on this morning. I guess it's Friday. It's, just, it's a thrill to be here. What, what, a, what a gracious uh, introduction. Yeah, we try, well, man. Love we to try, hear that. We try and give it to the old college try. Absolutely. That, Absolutely. There's a lot of college content going on right now. I don't know what that's about. But <laughs> welcome to the show. Congratulations on the paperback version of your uh, successful you. book. Uh, give us your plugs so that people can find you on those interwebs. Yeah. So my biggest plug is my website, which is williamrosenow.net. There you can find all kinds of juicy stuff. Some of my other writings, my academic work, which will probably be of less interest to anyone who on the, the tenure track hamster wheel, but other stuff on there that I think you'll find enjoyable. I'm also on, I'm on Instagram, but it's mostly pictures of my Karen Terrier and my son scenes in New York, not so much terrorism. Ah, there you go. So what motivated you want to write this book and brought you to this story? I've been studying terrorism for a couple of decades. I used to work at the RAND Corporation, another federally funded research and development center. And I kept coming across this name. And I, I had always been interested in kind of 60s and 70s extremism, political violence in the United States and, and Western Europe. And I kept calling, coming across this group. The, the formal name is the ear-catching May 19th Communist Organization. And it, the thing that struck me is that people would mention in the literature, oh, this group was started and wet, led by women. Mm. And that had always piqued my interest. And I discovered over the course of years doing some light research that basically nobody had written about them. They were just seen as a hiccup. They were associated with the notorious October 20th, 1981 Brinks robbery in upstate New York. Chris, I believe you... If I'm not wrong, you were not then, but you were part of the New York uh, JTTF, weren't you? <laughs> You're thinking of the other Chris Voss. I'm the original Chris Voss yeah, on the internet. Yeah. He's Christopher Voss, who actually hijacked my stuff. Too. This um, is but, yeah. I got fascinated by the fact, as I dug in, here you have a terrorist group which was involved in tons of armed robberies, kidnappings, freeing people they consider to be political prisoners, including Joanne Chesimard, also known as Sada Shakur, convicted of murdering a New York, a New Jersey state trooper, they helped her escape. She wound up in Cuba. She's still there. You had the Brinks robbery. You had Andrew Cuomo commuting the sentence of Judy Clark, one of the May 19th women. So there were so many pieces in this that were, were so compelling on so many different levels. It's like, why were these women involved in terrorism? They all came from middle class or upper middle class backgrounds, very well educated, had all the privileges that American life has to offer. Yet they went down this path. And this terrorism path for many of them began with the Weather Underground organization in the 1960s. But for some of them who stayed in May 19th, they really weren't rounded up finally until 1985. So we're talking about the second Reagan administration. And so I was fascinated by this idea. How, how do you persist in this revolutionary terrorist underground for decades when it's clear the revolution ain't coming? 
<laughs> Reagan's been elected twice, but you're still uh, in the game, and that just fascinated me. That's it, really interesting. So, give us the what, give us an overall arcing of the book. I think you've given us a little sum of it. Did we cover? No, they. One of the things they did, they they had sort of two phases. There was an early earlier phase where they were allied with the Black Liberation Army, which was an offshoot of the Black Panther Party, mm -hmm. um, a very violent organization. Joanne Chesimard was part of that. They basically conducted armed robberies to finance the revolution never being very well defined and assassinating policemen. They assassinated wow. at least 15 policemen around the United States. Holy crap. Like in New York, calling in a, a 911 at a housing project, waiting for the cops to show up in their patrol car and shooting them to death. So Jesus. the BLA, yeah, was 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 definitely part of the story. One of the members who went on to be a key member of the May 19th group had been the, who's described as the only white member of the Black Liberation Army. So this, the story really begins, I have to say, really begins in the 1950s mm. because one of the prime characters in the book, Judy Clark, whose sentence was commuted by Andrew Cuomo in 2016 or 2017 and who and, and wound up getting paroled. So her parents were both high level functionaries in the Communist Party of the United States. And dad comes home one day in the early 50s and says, kids, we're moving to Moscow. I'm going to be the correspondent uh, for the Daily Worker. So Judy spent some formative years in Moscow under Stalin. Really incredible. Came back. The parents got very disillusioned with communism. Judy kept the faith throughout and had terrible rows with her parents over this, over revolution and communism and Marxism, Leninism. Wow. So the book really, it starts there. And the trajectory goes through the 1960s the usual campus radicalism moving into real extreme violent extremism with the weather underground. They had all basically known each other. Many mm -hmm. of them had known each other, at least by reputation. And that's a, a common theme in terrorist groups that, that people are brought in by people who know them through like kinship ties or friendship ties. So that was definitely the case here. They decide they're going to help the black liberation army. Mm -hmm. They're going to be there. They're, armorers, they're going to rent them safe houses. There are a bunch of nice middle-class white women who aren't going to draw the kind of attention that black radicals did. They helped them with their armed robberies. They did surveillance, provided weapons, drove getaway cars. Then after this hideous Brinks robbery on October 20th, 1981, where two policemen and a, a Brinks guard were murdered. And I'm going to come back to someone who was recently paroled as a result of after his involvement in that case. They lay low for a few years. The, the, the hunt was really on. The joint, the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force and NYPD were after these people. They were cop killers. They were under intense pressure. They lay low and then had a, they, they rethought their enterprise. Mm -hmm. And they decided rather than do doing all this helping of these other groups, like the FALN, Puerto Rican separatist organization, we're, we're going to do our own. And what we're really going to be doing is supporting those revolutionary forces in the developing world, like South Africa, anti-apartheid, Palestinians, others, because in their view, they were in the belly of the beast. 
and they had an, a moral and political obligation to attack this imperialist monster from the inside. And so they went on a bombing campaign, went on for roughly two years. They wow. didn't kill anyone in this bombing campaign, but it's interesting in one of their communiques after the November 7th, 1983 bombing of the U.S. Capitol, hence the title of my book, they issued a communique that said, we deliberately decided not to target any individuals in this attack. Hmm. So that option was there. Wow. And as things unfolded over time, this propensity to violent extremism became even more intense. Two of them were arrested in 1984 at a storage locker in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. The storage locker had hundreds of pounds of TNT in very bad condition. Oh. In writing this book, I had to learn a lot about explosives, more than I wanted to <laughs> learn. And I learned that TNT, if not properly handled, it weeps and the nitroglycerin oozes out and it becomes extremely unstable to the Holy point where sound can set it off. But anyway, <clears throat> they're unloading this load, hundreds of pounds of TNT detonation cord, blasting caps. A lot of this they had stolen back in 1980 down in Austin, Texas. Mm. Um, thousands of rounds of ammunition and fully automatic Uzis, dozens of pistols, and thousands of rounds of ammunition. So it wasn't like, oh, we're just going to set off this stink bomb and, and make our point. I think they were really mentally preparing for... Uh, a more a more violent campaign. And indeed, toward the end, they talked about in their internal documents, which I saw through the, through the court, which were part of the evidence that the, the government brought in the various court trials, they used the phrase selective assassination. They talked to assassinating prosecutors, judges, Henry Kissinger. And uh, when each of them, each time they were arrested, not as a group, but in, in twosies, and each time the women had nine millimeter pistols in their purses, fully loaded with a round in the chamber. Wow. So these were serious, I want to say, I, I would say professional revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. Um they lived in a strange world of their own making, but all of them wound up in prison. Some served very long sentences, some and served their time and got out. Others were released for medical reasons and died. Two of the women, they had been arrested on weapons charges and rioting and stuff. They're still on the lam. In fact, wow. here I have the, you all can see this, the FBI wanted poster for Elizabeth Anna Duke. She's probably about 80 years old right now. She's been on the lam since 1985. And you said one of them's... Two of the people that they sprung from prison. So Joanne Chesimard, Asada Shakur, she's in Cuba. There's a multi-million dollar reward on her head from the Justice Department and wow. you know police associations in New Jersey. She hasn't been seen in a few years. I think she's lying low, realizing that it might be in the interest of maybe some Cuban to <laughs> help her off the island and, you know, <laughs> come back with a few million. Um, and the, another fascinating character they were deeply involved with, who's in, he was in the FALN, Willie Morales. He was the FALN's chief bomb maker and was long suspected of making the bomb that went off at Francis Tavern. You're too young, Chris, to remember Francis Tavern in New York, lower Manhattan, 1975, Bomb goes off at lunchtime, kills three people, wounds like 60, 
if you go to Francis Tavern today, there's, there's a little sign there. But he, and tell me if I'm going on too long, but I do, I won't say I love my characters, but I've really been fascinated by them over the course of writing, researching and writing this, this book. So Willie Morales is in his Queens, some people call it a bomb factory. It wasn't really a bomb factory. It's a grotty apartment. And one of his creations, he was actually making a pipe bomb. He, it, it went off. Mm-hmm. And it blew off nine fingers and about half of his face. Jesus. Okay, smoke, all the usual. The police come. They find him in by the stove. And they notice that on one of the knobs on the gas, there was blood. And they realize that he, having been wounded like that, crawled over to the stove and turned on the gas with his mouth, hoping that some cop would come in light a cigarette and everything would go up in flames. Holy moly. Yep. So he gets sent to the the federal lockup and through various machinations, he winds up at the Bellevue um, prison hospital where he's waiting to get outfitted with new hands. And his lawyer, who is part of May 19th, smuggles in bolt cutters. This is before they had... uh, Manometers, whatever, smuggled in bolts, cutters under her skirt. He's able to improvise a rope out of ace bandages. He cuts the wire, the thin wire, lowers himself like two stories, and then the ace bandage breaks, and he gets fall gets stopped by an air conditioner. The FALN, the BLA, and the main are there below waiting, and uh, they pick him up. He goes here, he goes there, they hide him, he's in Mexico, he gets arrested by the Mexicans. Anyway, he escapes. How he got to Mexico, because he didn't have his fake hands, so how he got to Mexico. Anyway, he is a guest of the Cuban government today. Wow. So Willie Morales, there's not as big a reward for him, but he an incredible character. And I, I can't say, I don't have any sympathy for him. I got some empathy and I have a kind of grudging respect for someone who is that insanely dedicated to the cause to, to do that. So that's the, that's the arc of the book. Those are the highs and, or, or the lows, depending on how you want to look at it. This is crazy, man. I, it, do they get away? Wh- why did they get away with this for so long? Is it because no one's looking for women? Cause you women usually aren't behind terrorist organizations or oh, this is a crazy time, the seventies and eighties. Cause yeah. there was a lot of wild stuff going on. I, I was born in 68 and yeah, it was just crazy stuff going on. So what was it that, that allowed them to get away with it for so long? It was a couple of things. There were a lot of different groups. So in, in the seventies and really into the early 80s, but the 70s was a really intense period in U.S. history for terrorism. People have forgotten about that. They think, oh, it's the 60s. No, it was really the 70s where, particularly in the early part of the decade, you had literally thousands of terrorist bombings a year in the United States. Some attributed, some not attributed. The police, I wouldn't say they were overwhelmed, but there was a lot going on. And these women... I have to say, and it was like the Black Liberation Army. The police and the FBI had a difficult time getting inside these groups. They did phone taps on BLA people who spoke in code. And I've seen transcripts of these, the BLA people who were involved with the May 19th women. And I saw this 60-page transcript, and the whole thing is in this code. Yeah, I got some spirit, and we're going to have a fiesta, blah, blah, blah. And 
it's almost impossible to understand what it is impossible to understand what they're talking about. So the police and the FBI were never really able to get inside them. And with May 19th, which was a small group, it was a couple dozen people in the underground part. It had an above ground portion where people publicly identified as May 19th members, but the underground was small. They, these people were living together in their communes, their, their safe houses. You, you just could not, they knew each other, you know, for years and years. You're not going to be some gal walking in off the street <laughs> saying, Hey, I, I want to be part of your underground enterprise. So that was, <laughs> that was really tough. And I think, yeah, it was only like a few lucky breaks over time. It took years. They were also, and I think this is important, they were very well-educated. They didn't have fancy jobs or anything, but the jobs they had, they'd work as secretaries. A bunch of them were printers. And so they they had skills. Like they had in, in some of these uh, storage lockers, they found blank FBI credentials, social security cards, driver's licenses. And this was pre-digital. So these yeah. things were pretty effective and they were really good at disguises. They, including, there were two men who were in the underground with them. And he, he, when he got caught, he was, his red wig fell off his head. So, but the women were really good at disguises and they'd live in kind of scruffy neighborhoods. They keep low key. They, they would get various, they get a library card and they use that to get something and then get a driver's license. So they were and interviewing former FBI special agents they had respect for their kind of revolutionary tradecraft. They weren't, let's face it, most criminals aren't that smart. Okay. Yeah. It's not. These people were very intelligent and very capable. And so the net, it took a long time for the net to really get them. But with the exception of the two women I had mentioned, they all got. <laughs> yeah. They and they were using payphones too, wearing disguises yes. and all sorts of stuff. I'm looking at a photo here of the Mary Evans. I think the FBI snapped this. And um, yeah, they had a complex system of using. They had numbers for payphones, and people would go to this payphone in New York at the corner of 77th and Madison at this time, and it was all very elaborate. Of course, you know, the more security you have, the more cumbersome things become. So they're spending a lot of time just maintaining security, but they were pretty, pretty effective at it. And and so I think that's part of the explanation for, for why they were able to persist for so long. What about, did this have anything to do with the feminist movements in the, the ERA and all that stuff, National Organization for Women? Did that play into any of this stuff? Not really. They they would certainly describe themselves as feminists. I'm looking at one of their posters here. They would certainly describe themselves as feminist. In fact, can I show a... Yes, please. So this was a... There was a big trial of about six of them. And this front group did this poster oh, wow. uh, to support the what they called the resistance uh, conspiracy trial. And you have all these things that they're supporting around here, like solidarity, anti-racism, lesbian and gay rights, self-determination, women's liberation. But the thing is, with their ideology, they really thought that things like equality between men and women would only come about through revolution wow, and, and through Marxism-Leninism, mm -hmm. their version of it. So they tended to look at the Betty Friedans and, and Gloria Steinem's and, and the sort of mainstream feminists out of it, not being very too incrementalist. The other thing is that certain parts of the women's movement and 
Betty Friedan was particularly notorious about this, were anti-lesbian. I mean, Betty Friedan basically said, we don't want to be, we don't want those crazy lesbians associated with us. And many of the women in May 19th were self-identified lesbians. So um, there certainly wasn't a lot of love loss, but they, yeah, they talked about this stuff. They, They talked about women's liberation. They talked about internationalism and peace and all this other stuff. But really the only way to get there in their view was through revolution. So uh, now were they mostly communists? Tell, tell us where the name M19 comes from. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting story that they, they call themselves, they definitely consider themselves to be communists. May 19th was the birthday of two of their revolutionary heroes, Malcolm X and Ho Chi Minh. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a very self-conscious choice because they were both seen as, as fighters for national liberation at home and abroad. They identified so closely with national liberation that those were real, real natural idols for them. So hence the name, which is a little bit, doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, does it? But It's their thing. Was it Malcolm X's revolutionary? I know between him and Martin Luther King, Malcolm X was more of a revolutionary, I think, if I'm using the right terminology. He was more about activism, I think, or I think he wasn't even a little bit more for violence. I don't know. Yeah, Malcolm X is just a fascinating person. And I think he wasn't, he was a revolutionary in a, in a way that Martin Luther King was. He was imagining a very different society. And wanted fundamental change. I think he he wouldn't have been in favor of, of bombing or assassinating policemen, and certainly not toward the end of his life. He himself, of course, was murdered uh, and his house firebombed. And we've all been following the case in New York with the yeah. few people who've been exonerated. But no, I mean he and he certainly wasn't a Marxist Leninist, but he was he, he was more of an, an icon and a very a very attractive figure. Certainly not just for the women of May nineteenth, but I think. At the time, and in retrospect, Malcolm X, was he's now described in the New York Times as this towering civil rights leader. When he was alive, yeah, a lot of people thought that he was this dangerous revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And it probably helped with their alliance with the Black Panthers. I remember the 80s Black Panthers and Ronald Reagan and all that stuff that went on, just uh, insane. And Ronald Reagan issued up a whole new entrance of racism that was through all of his policies and what he did. What other things haven't we touched on the book that you want to uh, tease out to readers? I guess there are a couple of things. One of the things that I found interesting, so there's a meta story. So there's the group, the sort of the, the individual stories, there's the group, and then there's the government and the broader culture. So one of the things I found very interesting was, and you mentioned Reagan, um, Reagan and his and people in the White House were really enthralled um, with this notion promoted by a writer named Claire Sterling called The Terror Network. She wrote a book of that name, The Terror Network, very influential at the time. And basically, sorry, sorry, that's my carrier. Uh, let, let me just mute for sure. Claire Sterling, this is interesting. Political assassination. I, I hope that doesn't uh, disturb your. No, we should be good. He's, he just he just won on the show. He won yeah, his, he won his moment. On the show, yeah, he'll, <laughs> he'll come over here. So the, the the main thesis, and there were people in Congress who also subscribed to this, was that basically all the roads from terrorism lead back to Moscow. So it could be the Red Brigades in Italy. It could be the Red Army faction in Germany. It could be the Black Liberation Army 
May 19th. It was all kind of part of this global campaign by the Soviet Union to undermine this. But interestingly, William Webster, who was the FBI director in the early 1980s, he didn't subscribe to this. And he his approach to terrorism was, this isn't some massive ideological struggle. This isn't some geopolitical Armageddon that's underway. This is criminal activity, and we're going to treat it as such. And we're going to do so within the boundaries of the law. So they weren't doing FBI, J. Edgar Hoover-style black bag jobs and illegal wiretapping. They were pursuing criminals, and mm-hmm. they saw them as criminals, and they got out of this ideological dimension, which I think w- was effective. And it's something that in, in some of my other writing I've talked about, having viewing terrorism in the prop- with the proper lens is very important. And after 9-11, for the first almost decade, it was framed as this global Manichaean struggle between the West and Islamo-fascists, which... I think it was a complete disaster. But it's interesting that the FBI director would be someone who's dialing back on this notion of terrorism as this, not existential threat, but as mm-hmm. the thing inspired by our global superpower enemy. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I wanted to, to, to bring out. And a couple of other things. So there were people in May 19th, I, 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 w- I would definitely call them idealists. I, and I'm trying to get at... And it's very elusive. It's like, why did this group of people, these individuals, come together? There were many people like them, but very few actually became terrorists. So terrorism researchers have been grappling with this for decades. And there is no, don't believe them if they say it's because of X that somebody becomes a terrorist or Mm -hmm. it's because of Y. There's never a reason. It's Mm. monocausal. And I hope that comes through. And the one other thing I would just um, point to would be the Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. government use the phrase homegrown terrorism sometimes, domestic terrorism, domestic extremism. There's a jumble of terms. But these people really were homegrown. Mm -hmm. They were all American in every dimension. And it got me into this notion that this is not – yes – Terrorism kind of comes in waves. The 70s were a period of intense terrorism. We're seeing a wave of white supremacist terrorism right now. We had anarchist anarchist terrorism at the turn of the 20th century. They're waves, but it's always there, right? It's not alien to our history, our culture, our political landscape. It's people have, since the time that we first showed up in Massachusetts Bay, (laughs) Terrorism has been a part of the repertoire. We need to remember that we're shocked by it. That's what terrorists want to do is shock us, among other things. But it, it, it it's never going to go away completely. It can be controlled, but it's woven into the fabric of our society. Yeah. And I think that's ho- I, something I hope that the readers come away with. Yeah, that's you addressed part of the question I was going to ask you is what are the parallels between January 6th and then we're, to, we're again at that state in America, like I remember the 70s, where I'm not afraid of someone from a foreign country. I'm afraid of white guys who look like me <laughs> doing terrorism or shooting up a place. Like when I go into places, I look around and I'm like, where's the guy who looks like me, who looks like he's got, you know, some sort of ax to grind. And it, it seems to have calmed down a little bit, but you know, you saw January 6th, any parallels that you saw in your research between that and where we're at in this era where white, 
white domestic terrorism is really more scary than worrying about some Arab blowing things up? Yeah, I think you're definitely right. And actually, there's been some good research. The Center for Strategic and International Studies and um, also Peter Bergen at New America, looking at the number of incidents since 9-11 and looking at the perpetrators and overwhelmingly the perpetrators of terrorism in the United States since 9-11 have not been jihadists. Yeah. They've almost all been militia or white extremists. It's a, a different group of problems. It's, I think, in some ways much scarier because I think the roots are a lot deeper. Marxist-Leninist violent revolution n- never really had a huge amount of traction in the United States. It had some in the late 60s and early 1970s, but it was always pretty damn alien. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that ideology. But the various ideologies <laughs> that are swirling around right now and are in circulation, no, they're they're some of them have European roots. They're neo Nazis and who worship Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the stuff is truly indigenous in an ideological way. In a way that like the Marxist Leninist women and men that I wrote about weren't you know, they were always on the outside. Mm-hmm. The people who perpetrated who perpetrate white supremacist violence. I'm not saying they're on the inside, but there's something much more, I think, rooted in, in, in the culture that they can yeah. draw on. Yeah. Um, and, and they're facing the sources of all this it, again, figuring out like what, who becomes a terrorist and why I think it's extremely difficult. And if not a fool's errand, you look at, you look at the industrialization, you look at the opioid crisis, you look at the immiseration of many Americans, and you realize there's a lot for political entrepreneurs on the violent right to draw on. Mm-hmm. Although I will point out that I think a lot of the, the idea that the people in January 6th or the people who were involved with the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters or the Atomwaffen Division, now known as the National Socialist Organization, are these down and out, unemployed mill workers is wrong. I yeah. think a lot of these a lot of the people are actually middle class uh, or lower middle class. Um, But anyway, does that answer your question, Chris? It definitely does. I think nowadays, I don't know, instead of a communist slant or some sort of, I don't know, uh, whatever sort of slants they had, it now seems to be more of a fascist, populist, authoritarian slant where people realize they're losing power and they're willing to give capitalism for complete control in a dying age or dying sort of light of like, we need to get back to the fifties or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. That's actually, that's an interesting parallel with the women that, and a, a couple of men that I'm writing about in tonight, we bombed the U S Capitol because they also saw the United States project as being weak at its end. It's not delivered. It's in crisis. These various elites have brought us to this point of disaster. Free trade, our imperial adventures in places like Afghanistan, let alone Iraq. And those are some of the same. That was a thread running. That that That's run continuously through certain kinds of U.S. terrorist groups for many decades. Yeah, it's, it's really, I don't know. We're at a really weird point. If you study fascism and authoritarianism, we're on the track for the fall of democracy. They saw that in Hungary last year and I think one other country. And so it's interesting how this is doing and, and how it's mainstream. I don't know, some of the political things that we see, the rise in violence is definitely alarming. And the the penchant for even some of the studies you're seeing where people believe that violence needs to happen to, we just had, uh, what was it, uh, Gosar? The Congressman Gosar 
Right. Who he's posting about literally assassinating fellow members of Congress. That's and there's a party that's supporting that. And you're like, at least that messaging. And you're like, if you really look what's going on, it's a very veiled violence thing that has come out of the January 6th thing and is ongoing. And this is where stuff gets really dangerous if you study history. I remember having Tom Hartman on the show about two weeks after January 6th, and he goes, you know what they call January 6th, don't you? I go, what? He goes, practice. It's a warm-up. Do you remember the beer hall in the of Hitler yeah. and and then in Russia there was a there was a first uprising as well with the terrorist activity. So it'll be interesting to see what's going on. Anything more you want to touch on or tease out on the book before you go out? You mentioned the violence and and uh, Gosar. I was immediately struck by that incident before the Civil War where Preston Brooks, the white supremacist slave ideology slave supporting senators from South Carolina beat Charles Sumner, the uh, abolitionist senator from Massachusetts, nearly to death on the floor of the U.S. Senate. And there's a famous picture of Preston Brooks with his cane, like wailing on Charles Sumner. So I'm not saying, obviously, the past is different, but Mark Twain said it doesn't rhyme, but it echoes. I, I, I think there's... That's one of those strains that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, this isn't the first time in American politics. We are a, we've been a very tumultuous republic in many ways. And I don't see that. I don't see any tranquility coming anytime soon. Yeah, when you see the violence that came out of the Trump administration, the guy who was sending bombs out of his van in Florida, the Philadelphia attack on, there's so many attacks, I can't even think of a room all, but the Philadelphia attack on the synagogue, all these guys who got activated by these things. And there's crazy people out there, especially on these social media platforms, that they get triggered and they start thinking of things that are violent. And we're not setting a good example to the world. But it's important for books like yours to come out because, it's like I always say, it's my quote, the, the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. And thereby comes, you know, like you said, like you said with Mark Twain, the echoes. This Preston Brooks, Brooks thing, I forgot about that. I'm going to have to do some reading after the show to check that out, as, including your book. Give us your plugs so people can find you on the interwebs. My website is William Rosenau. Lots of links there, articles, things of interest, upcoming events. That's probably my, uh, in social media, yeah, I'm on Instagram, but as I said before, it's mostly dogs and my son cavorting at parties and stuff like that. Yeah. Mine's <laughs> like the podcast and mine's yeah. like great authors and then Chris's lunch <laughs> and his dogs every now and then my huskies. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And then my gym workouts, I post like motivational thing that gets me fired up at the gym, but uh, hopefully influences the people go to the gym. It's been wonderful, Dr. Uh, Rosenau, to have you on the show and talk to us about this, because I think this is a interesting time. You timed it perfectly, too, with the Malcolm X story that plays into this of getting uh, those two men off. It makes me wonder, I'm sitting around going, who did kill Malcolm X and like, why did they get away? That's a good question. And mm. was it ordered from Chicago? Mm. And they now, even this many years later, 55 years later, it's there's still a lot of mystery surrounding that assassination. But Chris, I just want to thank you. This has really been enjoyable. A lot of fun. My paperback will be out available on Amazon or wherever you get your books at the end of the month. And it's just been great sharing thoughts with you. Thanks, thank man. you again. I think this is really important because we don't need to usher this times back. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks again. And happy Thanksgiving to you. 
Oh, happy Thanksgiving to you, too. You can buy this book and read it over Thanksgiving. comes out November 23rd, 2021. Tonight, we bomb the U.S. Capitol. Tonight, we bomb the U.S. Capitol. The explosive story of M19, America's first female terrorist group. Order the paperback so you can get a chance to read it and learn some about history so that we can prevent some of this stuff from happening in the future. Thanks so much for tuning in. Go to YouTube.com for just Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button so you get all the notifications of everything we're doing. Go to Goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. All the groups, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, just put them in the Google machine. There's so many of them I can't even keep track of them anymore. To my audience, thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other and we'll see you guys next time. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, Different collectors, limited edition custom made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me there's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com so be sure to go there check it out or order the book wherever fine books are sold